for us, um, we're going to be going into the Word of God in the book of Daniel. And uh, I did not have the words written on the PowerPoint because they're entirely too long. So you have a Bible in front of you, either on your phone or there's that big blue Bible with giant text uh, in the English Standard Version, page 925 in the book of Daniel. It is between uh, Ezra and Hosea, and, um, but the best way to find it is page 925 um, as we begin our new series in the book of Daniel. And we're going to read all of chapter 1. So if you could bear with me as we get into this new series. Uh, I've entitled this series and this, cha- uh, and this uh, sermon, A Life of Faith in a Pluralistic World. A Life of Faith in a Pluralistic World. Would you join me or at least follow along with me as we get into Daniel chapter 1. This is the reading of God's holy word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he uh, see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youth who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them 
And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king and every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them. He found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the very first year of King Cyrus. That is the long text this afternoon. But would you join with me? As we now get before the Lord, bow our heads in prayer as we ask the Spirit to work in our hearts to receive God's Word. Father in heaven, we thank you, O Lord, for this time in this new year, a fresh start, a new outlook on how we should approach not only the church, but our very own lives amongst this world. And I pray and thank you, Lord, that we get to start this new series and a life of faith in a very pluralistic world. And may you give us um, insight and strength and um, knowledge and wisdom like Daniel and his three friends had in order to know how to approach this world and how to approach our faith in this world. For it is not easy. It is not um, uh, it is very difficult to, to do, and sometimes and many times we fail in living and approaching this world in faith. So give us the strength, strengthen our faith as we hear your word this afternoon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We start, we're starting a new series, as I've said, in the book of Daniel that focuses on a life of faith in a very, very pluralistic, relativistic world. What does that mean? Well, that means that what does the Christian life look like when there are so many truths that are out there? What should we do when our truth in the Christian faith has to be somewhat suppressed in order to deal with other truths and accept other truths out there? especially due to social media, especially because of cancel culture. We are now in such an interesting time for the Christian faith. And being a Christian, you know, it used to be, maybe in our uh, parents' generation, it used to be easier in, in earlier generations in America. But now it's becoming more and more difficult. And the younger generation is finding itself, distancing itself from the God of Scripture and from church itself. And that's why the book of Daniel is a great book for us in our contemporary times. How do we approach the world that believes so many truths? How do we approach our faith when the world demands toleration and it demands acceptance? This is our aim in this series to look at a life of faith in a very pluralistic world. Okay, so there's three points this afternoon that we're going to look at. The exile of God's people, the faithfulness in God's judgment, and then thirdly, the identities of God's people. The exile, faithfulness, and identity. Let's look at the exile. Now, as citizens of heaven, you and I, God's people, Christians, live as aliens and sojourners and strangers in a land that is not our own. And there are times when the world's 
hatred and the world's enmity to the people of God become very evident in your life. Just because you own a home here, just because you've lived in Colorado your whole life, and just because you're comfortable does not mean that you are not an alien and a stranger to this world. When it comes to the hostility by the world, it's often shown to us not by force nor by sword in America, but by squeezing you and me into the world's mold. It wants to make us conform to its values and standards and not to stick out from the crowd. And so the pressure is on us in school or on work uh, to be like everyone else in this world in a way that, in the way that we dress and and the language that we use and the jokes that we laugh at and whatever. We are expected to, uh, um, you know, uh, laugh at jokes that uh, are, 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 you know, vulgar or uh, we're, we're expected to almost gossip about certain kinds of people because that's what society does. And if we want to, be, to get on and to be promoted in the, in the world of business, we're pressured to leave our values and religious beliefs at the front entrance of the door and to live a life and a style of life entirely assimilated to the business community. You find yourself there? We're expected to to value the things, the surrounding culture values, to to pursue passionately um, these prizes that are awarded to you if you do well in that endeavor, and generally to live in obedience to its idols. We have to choose daily whether to be a part of this world in which we live or to take the difficult path of standing against it. How do you cope in the midst of the brokenness and alienation that is life here on earth? What truths can you cling to when the jagged edges of existence are twisting against you and cutting into your flesh? What do you need to know to live a life of faith in an alien world, a world that is frequently a place of sickness and pain, of broken relationships and bitter tears, of sorrow and death. See, these are the questions to which the book of Daniel will give us answers to. Now, it was written to God's Old Testament people when they were experiencing the most brokenness and the most pain of their lives in this exile far away from their home. They're kicked out of their land. And it was designed to encourage them. This book of Daniel was designed to encourage them in their walk with God who was with them in the midst of their pain. So this is consequential living alongside with God. And just like Daniel, we too are living in a life of somewhat we could call exile, far away from our original home, heaven itself at times. And we need to know how to live this life here on earth when heaven seems so far away. You and I are closer to exiled peoples than we are living in our homes today. Now, the second point, in order to live faithfully in exile, we first need to know God's faithfulness. 
This is not altogether a comforting point, if you will, because the truth of the matter um, is that the first point or the second point that we're going to, then this aspect of God's faithfulness is that God is faithful in this chapter in his judgment. That's not a comforting point, is it? He's faithful in his judgment. You see, we might think that things happened accidentally in the time of Israel and the time of Babylon and the time of Daniel, or because maybe Babylon was so strong that they overtook God's people, and all of this is outside of God's control. But Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, if you go there, it says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It was the Lord who gave King Jehoiakim over to the power of Nebuchadnezzar. You see what this is saying? It's saying God gave his people into the hand of their enemies. It was God who judged This situation, not because Babylon was such a strong force. In countless times in the Old Testament, you've seen God protect Israel from very strong forces. Think of David and Goliath. Think of Joshua and Jericho. Think of Gideon and the 300 against the Midianites. It was God who protected the Israelites, a very small people group against mighty forces. But this time... God let Israel to be conquered. Now, for those who were in our Leviticus study, you'd know why. The Lord warned Israel of the consequences of their actions. At their beginning, God made a covenant with Israel. He said, if you obey, I will give you blessings. If you disobey, you will be cursed. And not only then would their crops be ruined and would become prey for wild animals and their enemies, if they persisted in that sin, If they kept disobeying the Lord, the Lord would then scatter them among the nations and they would waste away in exile. The Lord prophesied this in the book of Leviticus. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. There's more to just Daniel and his friends being exiled, right? A specific prophecy of Isaiah in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 18, also came true. You see, Judah's king, as it says here in Daniel chapter 1, but we'll, it's a reference to uh, 2 Kings. Judah's king Hezekiah had received a gift from the king of Babylon. And in response, what Hezekiah did was absolutely not what God wanted. Hezekiah showed him everything, the the king of Babylon, everything that was of value in his storehouses and all of his treasures. Now, for this, King uh, Hezekiah was condemned by the prophet Isaiah. Now, you have to ask this question. Why was God so upset with Hezekiah just for showing the king of Babylon his storehouses and treasures? What's wrong with that? It's not like he took him. He just showed it to him. Well, it's because nothing comes for free. It wasn't just a friendly gesture of goodwill. What the Babylon king was doing was asking Hezekiah, help us and support us against the neighboring country, Assyria. 
And so when Hezekiah showed his treasures to the king of Babylon, he was saying, well, I'll be a resourceful ally to you against this mighty Assyria. Now, what you should know is that before this, God miraculously delivered them from the surrounding armies of the Sennacherib and from the Assyrians, and now Hezekiah was doing something off. It was God who delivered them from previous enemies, just like Assyria, and Hezekiah now looked again to political means for solving this Assyrian problem. And so what he did was, well, hey, Here's this Babylonian country who needs our help. Let me show them our riches and our treasures, and let's combine a political and you know, treaty to, to one another, and let us then defeat the Assyrians together. So what's going on is that politics replaced trusting the Lord. You see, this is not just a then problem. This is a now problem. We do this in our politics. We think that politics is going to solve our problems in this life. And we lean for salvation in the way that government is ran. And oppression-free living. Now, I'm not telling you not to fight for how you want to vote in, in, in this world. And, and you have your own prerogative. And, and, and just because you're a vote Republican or just because you vote Democrat does not mean that you're less Christian or more Christian. You have your own prerogative to how you want this government and this country to vote. But the problem is we tend to look at politics or government changes to solve our sin and soul issues. But it's not just that. It's how we cope with our struggles rather than trusting in God, just like King Hezekiah did. Is, if there's trauma in your life, you have to ask yourself, how did you deal with that? We buckle down sometimes. Some of us are people who just put on our, our bootstraps and just go, right? We buckle down on our career, try to make more money in order to heal our pain that's deep down inside. And that's how we solve our problems. Or for some of us, we might find a relationship that will mask our emotional distress and seek temporal comforts to get us to escape. You know, you and I are very much like Hezekiah in the way we approach life. We find our own plan. We find our own ways rather than relying on God's sovereign love and mercy. But you see, God, despite all that, is faithful enough in his judgment. God specifically used Isaiah as a judgment on Israel. And that's what we find in the beginning of this book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and was found carrying off all the treasures from the temple of God to put in his own house of idols, in verse 2. And what it says is that God allowed him to do that. God is faithful in his judgment. 
You see, this is a very important point because during its hardest moments where life often seems out of control, our fate may sometimes seem to lie in the hands of hostile people or in an outworking of uh, impersonal forces of one kind or another. And yet the reality is that our every experience in this world from the apparently coincidental uh, evil and determined acts of wicked men and women, all of that lies under the actual control of the sovereignty of our God. See, Matthew chapter 10, 29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them, not one of them, will fall to the ground apart from your father. You see, this tells us that even in the most trivial of events, they are within God's grasp. And at the other extreme, even the most wicked acts of all time, like the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus, was the outworking of God's predetermined purpose. No sinful act ever catches God by surprise or thwarts his sovereign will. And everything that we experience in life, no matter how difficult or apparently meaningless it looks, God's purpose is for us. For believers in Christ, each circumstance is the Lord's means of furthering his sanctifying goals for you. He has not abandoned or forgotten you, even if you're struggling with so much unbearable pain because your life is such a mess. See, on the contrary, God will walk through these trials with us and preserve us through them by his grace. God is faithful by judging his people but also being with us in his grace. Then we move on to the third point, the identities of God's people. As we proceed to verses 6 through 7, we are given four names. And these names will be very common to us. They'll become very um, familiar to us. Do you recognize any of these names? Let me ask you, do you recognize the name Belshazzar or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? If you have little children and you're reading them the Bible, you'll realize that a lot of these uh, images uh, in your book uh, and stories of our Daniel and his three friends, that's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Most of them you probably heard before. And the reason why we recognize them is because what happened to them in the famous story of the furnace in which we'll get to later on in this series. But here today, what I want to look at is the significance of these names that are are not their original names, okay? So what I'm trying to get to is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Belshazzar are actually not their original names. Rather, they were given Babylonian names, which those are, by the king invoking the help of a Babylonian god, Marduk, Bel, and Nebo. Now, why do I tell you all this? You see, because look at their names. Their original names, Israelite names, were Daniel, which means God is my judge, Hananiah, the Lord is gracious, Mishael, who is what God is, 
and Azariah, which means the Lord is helper. And what is significant is that we recognize most of them through their Babylonian alias. We teach our children about their Babylonian alias. But not only names, but look at what they grew up with. You see, the king chose these young men to be tested, if you will, and to then serve him. They were instructed in the language and literature of the Babylonians so that its myths and and legends would overtake the place of Scripture as the source of their wisdom and worldview. Look at verse 4. In verse 5, they're given food and given wine by the king so that they would be accustomed to a life of dependence upon their new master, King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of this three-year initiation process, with their then previous identities absolutely obliterated, they would enter the service of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now think about this. Isn't that how the world reprograms our spirit? At its most effective, it consists of this subtle combination of threat and promise of of enforcement and encouragement. If you're against it, well, maybe prison camps if necessary. Usually the majority of the population are easily assimilated if they're well-fed and provided for. There's a saying, more flies are caught with honey than with vinegar. But you see, the goal is to obliterate all memory of Israel and Israel's God from the lips and the minds of these young men so to instill a total dependence on King Nebuchadnezzar for all the good things in life. A very strategic way of manipulating a new country. You see, this is how Satan operates. He may violently persecute believers in some parts of the world, and you might hear that at times. Yet often, Satan works more uh, effectively by seducing and deceiving you uh, into forgetting God and thinking that our blessings come from somewhere else. uh, Satan wants us to forget the truths expressed in in our Hebrew names, right, or or in their Hebrew names, and, and that God is our judge as well as the one who shows us grace. Satan wants us to forget the uniqueness of our God and the help that only he can provide. Satan wants us to control uh, the educational process so that our children grow up immersed in worldview, uh, in the worldview and his philosophy of life. You see, knowing this then, look at the strategy of these four young men. This is a life of faith in a very pluralistic world. What are we ought to do? What do we do? Well, look at what they did. They did not outwardly resist the system. That's the first point you and I need to see. They didn't buck the system outwardly. As far as possible, these young men sought to work within the system in which they had been placed, being good citizens of Babylon as well as good citizens of heaven. Isn't that strange? But inwardly, they resisted the assimilation process of the Babylonians in a number of specific ways. First, they resisted the naming. Now, you might be saying, what? They didn't refuse to answer to their names. 
When the king called them Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Belshazzar, they answered to them. But they did maintain their Jewish names secretly. So how do we then aim for this in our pluralistic world? Well, you see, you might now be castrated for being called a Christian in your workplace. You might be judged for taking on Christian faith and Christian worldview. You might know what that feels like to, to feel like a hermit in a very large and pluralistic world. And so for us to then live in this pluralistic world, first, we need to take every opportunity to celebrate our heavenly citizenship with other believers. That's this. This is the church, okay? We cannot just preserve our heavenly identity on our own. We cannot be left to ourselves and the, and the pressures of the world uh, inevitably will crush us into its mold. This is just a biblical fact. You can think that by associating yourself with the world and stop going to church and stop having true fellowship with believers, that, you, that your relationship with God will still be great. And if you hold on to that, you really don't consider Satan's immense ability to sway you slowly and subtly. You see, the means of grace, which is why we call our church the means of grace Denver, are seriously what changes us for the better. Preaching the word of God, reading the word of God, sacraments before you, and prayer. The three means, the ordinary means of grace. Now, I know we can sit under the word, we can do the sacraments, we can pray, and still lose sight of God. But it's utterly foolish to think that you don't need any of the means of grace to be doing okay. We need to take every opportunity living in this pluralistic world to fellowship with our other heavenly believers. The other thing that they did not assimilate to was the world that they uh, resolved not to eat the food from the king's table, nor to drink his wine, what we find in verses 8 through 16. Now, you might think that this was because of the kosher food laws as the reason why they didn't eat the royal food, right? But veggies were also offered uh, from the king, so it wasn't the food itself that was intrinsically evil, nor was it because they were offered to idols first. Rather, the reason why they did not take on the food of the king was to be a constant reminder of their dependence upon God for their food. And that's why they chose specific things, grains and veggies, to drink only naturally occurring things in verse 12. You see, depending on Nebuchadnezzar's food, uh, depending on Nebuchadnezzar's food was just like King Hezekiah depending on the Babylonian uh, uh, country to fight off an enemy. So you and I, because of that, we need to build into our daily routines constant reminders of our dependence upon God for all the good things in our lives. I'm not telling you that now you have to go vegan uh, or things like that. No, even such a simple act of, of giving thanks for our food may be a profound reminder of who God is and what he has provided for us. So how did the four boys do it? Well, if you look at our text in verse 8, they, they asked for a personalized diet plan. 
And in verse 10, the official was sympathetic to their request, but as we saw, he was afraid uh, of breaking down the king's system or breaking the king's system and being judged for it. And so Daniel comes up with a different plan. He says, well, well, how about you give us a 10-day test? And that 10-day test, we will eat the, you know, the, the foods that we asked and we will be fitter for you. Now, in that time, in those 10 days, they were found fitter, which was great. But fitter in that time would meant fatter. The, the, the more, uh, the better you looked, the fatter you looked, right? I wish I could live in that time, right? Um, now, what's the point of all this? Was it, was it to pick apart all of the faith goals that, that these men demonstrated and we were to mimic them and, and to live them perfectly? No. The point of all this is, again, how faithful God was to them. Now, you, you might not see it that way, but let me just show you. You'll see that it was God who caused them to find mercy in the eyes of their captors. And we'll see this throughout this book of Daniel. Somehow, in the 10 days, grains and... Ve- I'm starting this new diet program called Noom, and it's making me eat like a rabbit. Uh, and it's actually, I'm losing like a good amount of weight already because I'm eating a lot of vegetables and grains. Uh, there's no way you get fat, I think, than from eating grains and veggies, right? Uh, especially in 10 days. So obviously, the way to see this is God made them fatter by some sort of supernatural way. It was God who gave them understanding and knowledge of Babylonian literature and learning that, that ultimately gives Daniel the ability to, to, to discern visions and dreams of all kinds. And, and what you'll notice as you see the end of this chapter, that will prove useful as we progress in this series. You see, if God can keep them faithful... He can keep us faithful with much lesser trials and difficulties. Ultimately, it is God who preserves. It is God who strengthens. It is God who guides us, even in this judgment, his curse and this world. That's the point of this entire book. Let me conclude by saying this. So many of us will read Daniel and resonate with him and his faith. I don't know if you've ever heard that, like, be like Daniel or be like David or, or, or be like this as a way of kind of encouraging Christians. Um, you know, many will say as they read their Bibles, man, I, I'm so much like Daniel and his three friends. And you'll never hear that from me. You'll never hear that from me. You know why? Because the reality is that the more you peer into this life, the more you'll realize that you're not like Daniel at all. In fact, the truth of the matter is that we're far more like this nameless multitude of Israelites who were deported alongside Daniel, those who adopted four names, who took it on, those who ate the king's food, and altogether became like the Babylonians. And none of that was written in Scripture. We're far more likely to be that than to be like a Daniel or David. In many ways, we are assimilated to this worldly system in which we live, and our futures are mortgaged to it. Why do you think you have so much anxiety and worry in your life? Because our futures are mortgaged in the way culture teaches us. Now, this is not to, meant to destroy you, 
although that kind of sounds pretty pitiful, right? But the good news of the gospel is not simply that God is faithful to those who are faithful to him. The good news of the gospel is that a Savior has come to deliver faithless and compromised saints like you and me. That's the good news. Our salvation rests on the ability to remain undefined by this world, but rather on the pure and not sorry, not on our ability to remain undefiled, but rather on the pure and undefined uh, offering of that Jesus has provided in our place. You see, Jesus came voluntarily into this world. With all of its pains and its trials, he endured far greater temptations and sufferings than Daniel ever did or we will ever have. And yet, he remained entirely faithful and pure until the very end. And what's more is that Jesus has already returned from his exile and now sits at the right hand of God in heaven in victory. You see, the cross is the means by which God's faithfulness redeems the faithless. Jesus has not only pioneered the way home by living his life, being a better Daniel, if you will. Jesus is the way home. And what you're going to see is that through all of your suffering, through all of your angst, through all of your worry, and through all the pressures that you find in this very pluralistic world that overpowers you and your will, and you will falter at times, and you may fall, and you might start to question whether I'm worthy of being a Christian or not, and all that stuff. This series is meant to teach you and to comfort you that it is God who is faithful. Despite our sins and despite our falling, God has shown us the most faithful thing. Jesus dying on the cross for our sin. And that is what gets us through our day. That is how we are then forgiveful, uh, uh, forgiving towards others. That is how we're not filled with anger or angst or worry, but joy and comfort in this world. Not depression or escapism, because none of that ever solves your problem. But rather the Jesus who died on the cross, the faithful who died for the faithless, you and me. Would you pray with me as we now bless the elements?